Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. The word of the Lord says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of himself having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the measurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. And Lord, I do pray that as, uh, as, I, as I preach this morning, Father, that you would uh, bless me by, with your spirit, uh, guide these words, and help us to understand your scriptures and the hope to which you have called us through them. And in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. On a Halloween night in 1938, the radio program The Mercury Theater aired a dramatic enactment of H.G. Wells' story, The War of the Worlds, which pictures an alien invasion. And if you had tuned in that night, before the broadcast started, there was a brief disclaimer at the beginning that said what follows is actually an enactment. But many people, as you might imagine, tuned their radios in after the fact. And what they heard when they started listening was news bulletins about alien ships coming into New York City and other places and aliens attacking the world. Well, it's unclear exactly how much panic actually ensued, But it was true that some people started to panic, thinking that this was really going on, that aliens were truly invading. You know who wasn't panicking? All those people who heard the news bulletin at the beginning. They knew, through hearing that disclaimer, that everything was fine, that the world was under control, and that all hope was not lost. You know, it matters what we know. As Christians... This is true for us at all times. Sometimes we miss the disclaimer at the beginning of the program and we can look at the world and it looks chaotic and it looks like things are out of control. And it may cause us even to lose hope. But the disclaimer that tells us how to interpret the world as it really is, is the scriptures, is God's word to us. The Bible shows us the world as it actually is. It shows us that God is in control of all things, and even when we don't fully understand all the circumstances we experience, we can still hope and be people that live with hope. A person who believes in Jesus has more reason to hope than anyone. And this is what Paul is telling the Ephesians here. That's why he says in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints— I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul's prayer is that they'd receive a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God, which will help them to know 
the hope to which he has called them. When he says the eyes of your heart, he's basically saying your whole being. I want your whole being to be enlightened by the reality of what Christ has done. But haven't they already received the revelation of Christ? I mean, you know, Paul says in verse 15 that these people are Christians. In fact, he rejoices in their faith. Why would he pray for them to receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation? Is he saying that there needs to be more um, revelation given than what has been given through the apostles and the scriptures? Well, no. But he is saying that God has blessed them with every spiritual blessing, and yet they need to continue to strive to know him more. But it's not something that we can strive in and of ourselves to accomplish. While we read the scriptures, we need the spirit to teach us. And when he says the spirit of wisdom, he most likely means the Holy Spirit. That the spirit of wisdom and revelation would continue to bless us as we study the scriptures. As we get to know God more, it helps us to interpret the world as it actually is. So what Paul is saying here is that because God gives Christians a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of himself... Christians strive to know the hope to which he's called us. It's kind of like being married. When you get married, you don't just learn some things about the person and then tie the knot and say, okay, well, we're done. We've got it finished. I'm concluded here. It's a continual relationship. It's a continual walking. It's a continual getting to know. And this is what Paul is calling us to do, enabled by the Spirit. We strive to know, and our hope is increased. But it's very important that we understand the word hope biblically. When we use the word hope in English, a lot of times what it pictures is kind of a, an uncertain desire. So for example, you may say, you know what, I really hope we go to Disney World this afternoon. Well, you may desire that, but it's probably an uncertain desire if you haven't planned on going. Biblical hope is actually very different than that. Biblical hope is expectation. It's confidence. It's even certainty that the things that God has said are true are ultimately true. And our confidence, our hope is increased as we get to know what it is that God has done through Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wants us to know. He wants to tell us some things that will increase our hope. He starts here in verse 18. He says, he wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What inheritance does he refer to here? Well, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints is actually teaching us something about God's inheritance. In this verse, Paul wants believers to know that the church is God's glorious inheritance. I want you to think about that for a moment. The God who is the creator of everything, the God who made the world that we live in, the trees, the cosmos, the universe, everything God can look at and go, that is mine, that belongs to me. And yet the Lord God looks at his church, at his people, As his glorious inheritance. That should shock our systems a little. The church, really? People that sin and confess their sins every week and still, you know, continue to try and and, and live the Christian life. It's got people with broken stories, people that offend one another, people that fight sometimes. But the church is really God's glorious inheritance? It is, and it should fill us with hope. Josh McDowell is a name some of you probably are familiar with. He's a Christian author uh, who works through Crew Ministries. And uh, he actually grew up in a home that was very unloving to him. 
fact, he'd never felt loved in all the years that he had grown up. His father was somewhat abusive to him, and, and he was a very disillusioned uh, man as he went off to college. And he got this assignment in college, and he decided he was going to write a paper to disprove the Christian faith. And so he began investigating and doing research. And what he found as he began to research was that the Bible held up as a historical document much better than he'd ever really realized. But you know what drove him to become a Christian? Was as he read the gospel story that God had sent his own son, Jesus, to become a human being and to die in his place so that he could be forgiven, Josh realized for the first time ever that if that was true, then he was actually loved. Then he was actually the inheritance of God. And that awakened him to a hope that he had never known before. For some of you this morning, you've never felt loved or desired. Maybe you've struggled your whole life because you simply see your failings or your weaknesses. Or maybe you've been rejected by people in your family or maybe your spouse or maybe your siblings or co-workers. And you've never felt loved and accepted. The message of the gospel to you, the good news is that through Christ Jesus, you are loved and accepted. You are the great inheritance of God the Father. He treasures you as his own. He paid for you with the blood of his Son. We are loved and accepted and are the inheritance of God, the creator of everything. And that should give us hope. For others of you, as you think of the church, you think of it as kind of a mess. You see people and you maybe don't like the way that they dress or you maybe don't like the attitude they come with. And, and maybe you just, you know, maybe it's even other churches down the street and you go, man, I just don't like the way that they do that over there or other things like that. But brothers and sisters, what we need to remember is that the church, the people of God, all those who claim Christ are God's great inheritance. That means that should help me as I deal with you and maybe, maybe you, you cause me to become impatient. I got to remember that actually God sees you as the great inheritance. And I remember that about other churches in our area as well. Other churches that are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though we maybe don't believe every single thing the same as they do, if they're proclaiming Christ as king and him raised from the dead, then they are the great inheritance of God. Jesus says, by, all, by, by this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Knowledge of God's love for his church should stir us to hope and should change the way that we look at ourselves and at one another. What else does Paul want us to know to stir us to hope? Well, look what he also says in verse 19. Paul says he wants us to know of God what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. The God of heaven is so powerful that when his son Jesus was killed as a sacrifice for the sins of God's people, God brought his dead human body back to life, never to die again. But it didn't end there. God, the God of heaven, also in bringing his son back and showing him to, uh, the book of Corinthians says, as many as 500 people saw him alive. God also took that same son, Jesus, and raised him from earth into heaven. He actually ascended up into the heavenly places in front of the disciples' eyes. There is mystery to this. We can't in our humanity get to heaven. I don't know exactly, I can't draw you a map there. 
But what the scripture teaches us is that Jesus, the God-man, actually now sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. It was God's power that brought him there. But there's something else that we are to know that should fill us with hope. That same power God used to raise Christ from the dead is at work in his church today. If you are a Christian, it is because the power God has which raised Jesus from the dead brought you to new life in himself. And as Jesus came back to life in human flesh, so the God who raised him will one day raise his church back to life bodily as well. The guarantee of this is the fact that God brought Jesus back and ascended him to his right hand. When you think about it, the unconquerable enemy of humanity is death. Who can defeat it? God can. God has. And in his bringing Jesus back to life from the dead and seating him at his right hand, it is a sign to all of us that our God is more powerful than all other powers. The city of Ephesus that Paul writes to here was a city of pagan magic and the worship of a God named Artemis. And it's more than possible that many of the Ephesians who became Christians that Paul is writing to here had been part of that system. They had actually been part of demonic powers and other things like that. And so in, in saying that, that God is the most powerful, Paul's saying, you know, you don't have to worry about those other powers. They are under God's power. They recognize that Jesus sits in authority over all. There is no power over God. There is no ruler whom he fears. There is no power that will overcome him. The power of God which raised Christ and seated him is over all and is at work in his church. There is a spiritual battle going on and the scriptures tell us this. If you're a Christian, you find yourself in the middle of that battle. But the scriptures here assure us that God is the victor and that he is stronger. The God who brings dead people back to life is the God who works with great power in his church. Now sometimes it's easy for us to doubt this. I think sometimes we think, well, you know, if only I could have seen Jesus come back to life. If only then, then, then I would be able to believe that the power of God is actually at work in his church today. Where do we see that power at work? Dr. Harry Ironside was a famous evangelist and Bible teacher in uh, the early 1900s. And one day he was preaching at a Salvation Army meeting in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And as he was preaching uh, the gospel... He sees this man that comes in at the back of the room, and he kind of is watching and listening to everything Dr. Ironside says. And he watches the man pull out a little card from his pocket and write something on it. Well, Dr. Ironside finishes his sermon at the end, and this gentleman walks up to the front, and he hands him the card. Dr. Ironside takes it, and he looks at the card, and on the card it says, Sir, I would challenge you to debate with me agnosticism versus Christianity next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. Dr. Ironside looked at that card, and then he uh, announced to everybody, he said, uh, Friends, I've just been challenged by this gentleman here to uh, debate with him agnosticism versus Christianity at 4 o'clock next Sunday afternoon. And you know what? I think I'm going to take this challenge on two conditions. And the conditions are these. I want this gentleman here to bring with him one man who was down and out, whose sin had wrecked his life. It doesn't matter what the sin was, but something that made him an outcast of society. Maybe he was a drunkard. Maybe he was a criminal. Maybe he was a victim of his sensual appetite. But a man whose life was under the power of something that had destroyed him, of evil habits, who through hearing this transforming power of agnosticism was freed from it. 
And he says, I want him to bring one man and I want him to bring one woman. Who maybe, you know, in hearing the denunciation of the Bible and the message of the gospel, found newfound hope and agnosticism that brought her out of a poor, wrecked, or characterless life. And he says, and if he can bring two, I'll bring a hundred. I will bring a hundred people whose lives were broken, who, who maybe struggled with alcoholism or who struggled with, you know, broken marriages or broken families whose lives were transformed by the power of Jesus Christ at work. After hearing that, the gentleman kind of smiled wryly and he walked out of the building. Brothers and sisters, that is the power of God at work in his church. We have to remember these things. We have to remember that actually we were dead in our sins. We were as good as dead. And if we believe in Jesus Christ now and in what he accomplished on the cross, it is because God's power brought us to himself, awakened us to that reality. Maybe there's a loved one in your own family that rejects the Christian faith. Maybe so much that you've written them off. In your mind, there's no possible way they could ever believe the gospel. They're dead to it. This is the God who raises the dead who brings the dead back to life. We must pray and believe in hope that the Lord, if he desires, can bring that family member to himself. For others of you, as you struggle to believe God's powers at work, I challenge you to look back at, at your life and where you've, the times where you've seen God clearly at work. How was it that you became a Christian? What, what did God do that brought you to himself? Maybe you right now feel trapped in a sin that you just can't escape. Resistance to sin is difficult, but we must remember that the Lord's power, which caused Christ Jesus to be raised from the dead, is at work within us. No temptation, the Bible says, has overcome us, which is not common to man. And the Lord is gracious. He always provides a way out. And, um, and, you know, in these things, as we wrestle, we have to know this truth, that the Lord is more powerful than all sin and all temptation that comes our way. It doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy battle, But we do know that the Lord is victorious. There is hope in the gospel. He does enable us to say no to sin. If you don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead today, and you don't believe in the power of God at work in the church, I challenge you to get to know somebody who does. Ask them stories about their life. Ask them how it is that they experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ. How is it they came to believe these things? And actually, one another, we need one another. As we tell our stories to each other, we begin to remember the reality of the gospel and see God at work in our midst. And it encourages us to hope. God alone has the power to change life forever and that should fill us with hope. And it actually is something that we see all around us every day. There's a third truth that should cause the Christian heart to hope. And it's what Paul tells us in verse 21. There he says that Christ is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, in the one to come. He's saying that when it comes to authority, the buck stops with Jesus. Jesus is head over all authorities. All presidents and dictators, monarchs and movie stars, all earthly powers are under him. But this truth covers the spiritual realm as well. All powers in the spiritual realm, angels, principalities, even the devil himself, are subject to the authority of the risen King Jesus. In verse 22, the text says that God, he put all things under his feet. 
It is a reminder of something God spoke long ago before Jesus came to earth. God said it through uh, David in Psalm 110, which we read this morning. David, the king God established over the nation of Israel, writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's kind of strange language there. In other words, David, the king, is saying, the Lord says to my Lord that a king that would come after David would be in the position of the Lord. And God would say to God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Did you ever wonder what Jesus was doing up there? Sometimes I think we picture that maybe he's just sitting there kind of biding the time, watching until it's time for him to return. No, what this text tells us is that Jesus is seeing all enemies brought under his feet. And that's not all the Bible tells us that Jesus is doing right now. He actually prays for us as his church. He intercedes on our behalf. He is the high priest. That's exactly right. Jesus is actively subduing and conquering all enemies to himself. I have a photo that someone posted on Facebook, which I thought was really funny, and I, I love it. It's a photo of, of the ocean. And it's just basically this picture of the ocean, and it says on top of it, awesome picture of a submarine battle. Well, that, that could be going on, but you can't see from the picture because from our viewpoint, all we see is the surface of the water. You know, in many ways, sometimes it's like that as, as the church of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us Jesus is conquering and subduing all enemies to himself. But we can't always see it. But the scriptures tell us that that is true, that that is the reality going on behind the scenes. Jesus, who now sits at God's right hand as king, has subdued us to himself. And that's good news. Do you realize that we were God's enemies? That we actually, in our sinfulness, committed treason against the king who is enthroned on high. But God desired us as his inheritance. So he sent Jesus down to take on human flesh and in our place die for the treason we've committed on the cross. Do you know if we had died Jesus' death, it would have destroyed us. But it didn't destroy Jesus. Jesus took our punishment on himself and he came back to life never to die again. Our Lord and King is the great conquering King. And when we as sinners simply acknowledge our sin before him and say, Lord, we acknowledge we've committed treason against your kingship, our great King who's merciful says to us, come all to me and become the great inheritance of God the Father. Jesus brings us into the family of God. And that should fill us with hope. But second... We don't understand also that all enemies of God will be crushed under Christ's feet. In the end, death and evil itself will be destroyed. And Satan, the enemy who opposes the kingdom of God, while he's not an unintelligent being, John Frame, the famous theologian, says he's guilty of the worst kind of stupidity. He doesn't have a shadow's chance of defeating Christ. And that should cause us to hope. You see what this passage says in the end of verse 22 and 23? After it says that God put all things under his feet, it says, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. These words are a bit confusing. Is Paul saying that the church is the fullness of Christ as if he's incomplete without it? Well, grammatically, the best way to understand this verse is to read the word fullness as passive. In other words, the church isn't filling Christ. Christ has filled it. The king is present with us 
and he reigns over the entire church. But that's not where his reign ends. You see what Paul also says when he says he fills all in all? It means that Christ's reign extends to the whole of creation. The human race, the angelic realm, all find themselves in subjection to his rule. His presence and power are inescapable, and his love, power, leadership, and grace are extended to the church he fills for her benefit. I want you to think about this. What the text is teaching is that Christ's leadership always benefits his people, the church. Do you know of any leader like that? Any leader whose every decision benefits the people that they represent? Even when we don't understand exactly what Jesus is doing, what this text is teaching us is that God's power at work and Jesus' leadership is benefiting us as his people. And we can be confident of that because he also, his dominion and reign fill all in all. He's in control of everything. And he leads his church for our benefit. Andrea, my wife, uh, has an uncle and aunt, Bill and Jeannie. And Bill is a uh, veterinarian. And they rescue uh, animals that are in danger many times. And, um, and uh, Aunt Jeannie does this as well. And so they, when I, when I first met them, actually, I went over to their house. And uh, I was just bombarded by animals everywhere. They, uh, they had this monster dog that came and greeted me. And, and I'm looking, and they have ducks in the backyard that they're you know, nursing back to health. And then they said, would you like to go upstairs and pet the fawns? And I'm like, are you serious? There's fawns in, in your house? This is, this is what they do. They, they like to take care of animals. Well, recently, uh, Aunt Jeannie was walking in the woods, and she found these two baby raccoons by themselves. And it looks like what happened was that their mother was trapped and relocated someplace, and these babies were basically left for dead. And so Jeannie got a box. She put them in the box. She took them to Bill, and he you know, made sure that they were healthy, and they began nursing them back to health. And the raccoons, uh, there's pictures of them on, on Facebook. They're scared to death. They don't know what's going on. They don't understand what's happening. But the one who had control of the situation is nursing them back to health so that they can go back into the wild. They may not get it, but she's doing it for their benefit. You know, it's really hard to illustrate what Jesus has accomplished. Nobody has complete control of everything. Jesus does. And in his leadership, he leads his church so that we benefit, that we are conformed to the image of Christ. Some of you are actually kind of disturbed by the fact that she would rescue raccoons. And they're kind of vicious creatures. They don't make good house pets. Who would want them? Do you not hear the gospel in that? We were God's enemies, rebelling against him and without hope in the world. And God so loved us and desired us as his inheritance that he redeemed a hostile people, making us children. And he's given us a future and a hope through his son, Jesus Christ. The king is reigning for the benefit of his church. The king is powerful and uses that power within his church. The church is made up of sinful people whose status has changed to being a glorious inheritance to the God who made the world. Does that not enlighten your heart with hope? Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, it's so hard for us to understand exactly what you have accomplished, but we are so thankful, Lord, as your scripture teaches us today, that our King Jesus sits on the throne, that there is no power over him, and that all powers are subject to him. Lord, as we look at the world, sometimes it looks chaotic. Sometimes we don't understand the circumstances that we find ourselves in. I pray, Lord, that as we remember this truth, 
that Jesus is king and that he is reigning and that he is leading us as his church, that you would fill our hearts with hope and confidence that you are bringing all things uh, under your power. And Lord, we thank you that you did not just crush us as your enemies, but that you loved us enough that you would send Jesus to die in our place. Father, I pray for those that maybe don't believe that this morning. I pray, Lord, that the gospel would ring out, that they would see the fact that through Jesus, they can be loved as a great inheritance of God the Father. Lord, enlighten our minds by your spirit. Guide us as we walk with you this week. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.